I come to you with a report from one of the weirdest cities in which I have ever spent time. Weird isn't just my impression. It's the goal of many citizens in the great city of Portland, Oregon. That's short O, not long O, as in Oregon. There are all sorts of bumper stickers that float around or big, huge signs on the sides of buildings that say explicitly, keep Portland weird. Mission accomplished. Let me tell you, it is a weird place. I felt so out of it. Every time I go there, I feel so uncomfortable. After several visits, though, to this city, in order to spend time with my wife's sister and her husband and now daughter, I've learned how to survive in just one of the many strange worlds there. That's coffee world. All right, so here's the deal. Here in the Midwest, we have just a couple of types of coffee people. We have Dunkin' Donuts, McDonald's-type coffee drinkers, and we have Starbucks-type coffee drinkers. Moment of truth. A little bit of participation on your part. If you are a Starbucks-type coffee drinker, hand up. Okay. And if you are a Dunkin' McDonald's-type coffee drinker, hand up. All right, everybody look around. These people don't have taste buds. This goes back and forth here in the Midwest. We make fun of each other because some people don't have taste buds and other people think that we're snobbish, those of us that are Starbucks folks. In Portland, catch this, Starbucks people are lower on the totem pole than Dunkin' people are to Starbucks people in the Midwest. Did you follow that? That's how it works in the great city of weird Portland. Portland coffee citizens have their entire way of life that they think sets them apart in their own eyes, at least, from the rest of the world. Stumptown Coffee Roasters, one place in particular, is a world unto itself. With appropriately weird dress and music and hairstyles and language and coffee etiquette. You know, the trick in a place like this is to, look, to not look like everyone else, even though you do, in fact, look like everyone else. And to act according to all of the rules for appropriate behavior, but to act like you're not acting like the rules. Make sense? I made a mistake when I was in one of these coffee shops a year ago that I didn't make in my most recent visit. Having not seen a menu anywhere in the place, I made the mistake of asking for a refill on my cup of coffee. I thought this was a great cup of coffee. I just wanted to, to drink more of it. And I thought that would be a compliment to them. And so I asked how much a refill was. I wasn't trying to get a free refill. Just how much is a refill? And I got looked at with a disgusting look, complete with sigh and eye roll and then dismissive response. There would be no more coffee for me unless I paid full price. The customer isn't always right in a place where the customer isn't always right. Portland coffee citizens exist in a counterculture. They have an entire way of life with rules and norms and standards for appropriate and inappropriate behavior. And it's the same, hopefully not with the jerkishness for the citizens of Jesus' kingdom. This is the final message in our series, Your Kingdom Come. We've spent time considering Jesus the King and his kingdom. And I want to review what we've covered thus far so that this message makes sense as the final message. First, on Easter weekend, we looked at the risen King Jesus. His death and his resurrection served as his kingly coronation. Next, we considered the nature of the kingdom. It's an already but not yet kingdom. The kingdom is here but not yet fully. And we live in the midst of this tension between the time when the kingdom was inaugurated and the time when it will be fully manifested. 
That important tension, the nature of the kingdom that is here but not yet fully, sets the stage then for the other three messages in the series. So in the third one, we learn that people have an opportunity to enter the kingdom through the narrow door now, but not forever. And then last week we learned that we as Christ followers have the opportunity to invite people to the wedding banquet, to the kingdom of God now. And that leads us then to our final message in the series, How do kingdom citizens live in the midst of the already here but not yet fully kingdom of God? How do we live in that tension? What does a kingdom citizen look like? How do they behave? What kind of countercultural expectations, rules, norms, standards are appropriate for kingdom citizens? Now, much of what Jesus said was directed at answering these questions, and one place where this is clearly the attention is the famous Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So if you have a Bible, now would be a good time to make your way to Matthew chapter 5, and you can take out your weekly welcome so you can take some notes. I've actually visited the spot in Israel, and more specifically in Galilee, where a lot of people think that Jesus delivered this very famous sermon. There are several compelling pieces of evidence that this is the spot. I'll only mention two of them. First, it's on a mountainside. And as we're going to see in a moment, that becomes a very important setting piece in the introductory verses to this sermon. You know, from this spot, a tourist can get a seriously beautiful view of the Sea of Galilee and all of the surrounding countryside. Second, This particular location lends its topography to an acoustic miracle. Our guide told us that a person, a speaker, could stand at the bottom of this mountainside and he could look up at a significant number of people, perhaps even in the thousands, and each of them could hear his word. And so in order to demonstrate this to the skeptics amongst us, that was me, he sent me down to the very bottom with a Bible, and he said, I want you to read the Beatitudes, our sermon text for today, the words that Jesus uttered, most likely in the spot where Jesus uttered them. I want you to read these words in a semi-loud voice for us to hear. The rest of the group stayed up on top of this mountainside, and they were able to hear each word that I was speaking. Then we switched. I went up top, they all came down, and someone read the Beatitudes so that I could hear, and I heard every word. This particular place, this mountainside, provided a natural amphitheater, and it's from here that Jesus proclaimed his countercultural revelation of life in the kingdom for the people of the kingdom, and this sermon on the mountainside. So if your Bible's open, you turn to Matthew 5, look at the first two introductory verses. Matthew writes, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now I've already mentioned that this mountainside is important, but it wasn't only important because of the view or because of the acoustic properties. It was important because, catch this, when Jesus took up this position, he was most likely reenacting another very important mountain scene in the history of Israel. In the Old Testament, we read that Moses received instruction from God on Mount Sinai and that this body of instruction was designed to govern life for God's people. 
Here, in a similar move, Jesus is going to instruct, and this instruction is going to govern life for kingdom citizens. That's a significant similarity, but let me note one significant difference. When Moses received this instruction from God, he passed it on to the people as a mediator. Moses mediated it, but Jesus here speaks directly. A king to the citizens of his kingdom. So the response of his hearers, which includes us, our conformity or obedience, is directly connected to Jesus' authority to make these various demands. His person is connected to his teaching. If Jesus isn't who he thinks he is and says that he is, then what he says is bunk. Now, this is a really important point to make because many people will try to reserve a place for Jesus as a great teacher of ethics or proper behavior, but they don't acknowledge that his teaching cannot be divorced from him. You can't have one and not the other. I saw this mistake made again recently. The the superhero of Christianity critics in America is former evangelical-turned-agnostic Bart Ehrman. And you've heard me talk about his views before because he keeps making a killing by publishing book after book. I counted at least 11 on his Amazon authors page that seek to undermine Christianity. In his most recent book, How Jesus Became God, Ehrman seeks to show that Jesus and his disciples never claim that he was God in the sense that we normally mean when we're talking about God. He was a normal guy who turned into God over the course of many centuries. Now, I've got a lot of beefs with his book, but my main beef for what we're talking about here comes in the epilogue of his book. After thinking he's thoroughly de-godded Jesus for some almost 400 pages, Ehrman still wants to hold a place for the ethical teachings of Jesus. And so he writes this about Jesus. He says, Jesus taught that much of the law of God could be summarized in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. He taught that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He taught that our acts of love... Generosity, mercy, and kindness should reach even to the least of these, my brothers and sisters. That is, to the lowly, the outcast, the impoverished, the homeless, the destitute. I agree, he concludes, wholeheartedly with these views and try my best to live according to them. Well, that's all true. But here's the problem. Jesus wasn't simply offering a nice, neatly packaged set of good principles by which we are to live. When he, in Matthew's words, went up on a mountainside and sat down, he was about to lay down non-negotiable, authoritative teaching, and his position as king had and has an inherent, proper authority. What many people don't recognize today or want to disconnect today was very clear to the first hearers. Matthew records, actually, at the end of the sermon, the response of those people who heard Jesus. He says in chapter 7, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. We must hear these words in their proper context, recognizing from whose mouth they proceed. King Jesus gives three descriptors of of the way of life for kingdom citizens. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Kingdom citizens are those who live in humility. 
Now, there are three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, and since Jim launched this series several weeks ago by borrowing Peter's sermon from Pentecost, I thought I'd cheat too and just steal Jesus' sermon, but this is considerably longer. So I had to kind of summarize it a little bit. So we're going to actually look at the essence of the Sermon on the Mount, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Now, I've grouped them, as I already said, into three groups, and each of them will have these three Beatitudes in them. So you can start with me by following along as I read the first three Beatitudes in verses 3 through 5 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I hope that your training around here has paid off and that you quickly pick up on the repeating word in these verses. In fact, we're going to see this nine times before we're done with the verses, so it's really good that we're clear on it. The key word is blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Jesus says this nine times. It's a wonderful word that is concerned with God's favor. We could actually translate these. God's favor is on the poor in spirit. God's favor is on those who mourn. God's favor is on the meek. Jesus is listing kingdom people and kingdom actions that receive God's approval. And as he does so, he joins in a long line of Old Testament list makers. Let me give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament that seem to mirror or relate similarly to what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 5. Look at Psalm 15 with me. The writer says, the one whose walk is blameless. These are the people that God approves of, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. God favors those people and the psalm ends by saying, whoever does these things will never be shaken. Famously, Micah 6.8 is also a list. What does the Lord require of you? Who does God approve to those who act justly? He wants us to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Matthew 5, Psalm 15, Micah 6, they force us to ask two questions about ourselves. Am I one of these people? And where are these people? Because I would want to get around people like this. These are compelling characteristics because they're characteristics that are godly. God approves of these kinds of people. We have similar lists in our culture of the kind of people that we approve of. Have you ever seen a superlatives list? Or did you get added to a superlatives list when you were in high school? These are coming out right now in the yearbooks in the next couple of weeks. Superlatives lists are all of the best whatever that you get attributed to you in high school. Where are these people now? Where are all of the people that are described by these things? Take a look at this list. This is our culture's list of what we approve of. People who are best celebrity lookalikes, that's a winner. People who are best dressed, best entertainers, they have the best eyes and hair and legs. Personality, smile, the best flirt, the best looking, the most affectionate. Where are these people now? 
These are the people that we approve of. And many of us have adapted that into an adult version of it. And we're still checking ourselves against lists like this. I approve of myself if I fit into these categories. And we judge each other even according to these categories. These are the things that we approve of. But God has a different kind of list. God's approval list sends a shock to our system because we don't expect God to favor the meek and merciful, the poor in spirit and pure in heart, the mourning and hungry, and the peacemaking persecuted. His evaluation standards for approval are very different than ours. He approves of those who live in humility. And I think that's a great summary for these three attributes, poor in spirit, mourn, and meek, all of them get at the heart of a person who is deeply dependent upon God for everything. You know, people who are poor in spirit, the poor probably refers to a spiritual component and an economic component, recognize their helplessness, their neediness. People who mourn know that life isn't all about laughter and entertainment and their own cheap happiness. Instead, they grieve in the face of suffering and tragedy and pain, injustice and death. They mourn over their own sins and the sins of other people and the effects of that sin. They suffer with those who are suffering and in so doing they express true love. People who are meek trust God to sort things out because they recognize that they're not in control of everything in their life. That's humility rather than pride. They don't insist on their rights or grab the best for themselves. They're not overcome with impatience and sarcastic responses and anger because they recognize that they're not the center of the universe. They've surrendered the kingdoms of self and success at the expense of other people so that they can be about other people. The poor in spirit, the mourning, and the meek are humble. They're not all about themselves because they're enamored. They're all about God. And their Godward orientation, their Godward perspective results in a rich life here. Jesus says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They receive comfort. They are the ones who inherit the earth. You know, you've probably heard it said at some point that Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. But Jesus flips that on its head. He says that kingdom citizens, people in his kingdom, are those that are so heavenly-minded in their dependence upon God, their humility, that they're going to be of immense earthly good because of the selfless lives that they live. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He's a famous author, and he writes all of this amazing stuff. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the, the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Jesus says those who are humble are aiming at heaven and they get earth thrown in. Kingdom citizens are those who live in humility. They have their minds set on things above so they're able to really live here. See, that goes contrary to all of our expectations because no one wants to sign up 
to be poor in spirit or to mourn or to meek, but it's in that kind of humility that we really live, and it's in that kind of humility that we see a true kingdom citizen. That was the case for a guy named Nicholas Herman. You probably don't recognize his name because he lived in France during the 17th century and actually became famous by another name that you probably don't recognize, Brother Lawrence. But he wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. He was converted at the age of 18, served in the military most of his life, but at age 55, he decided he wanted to invest in a monastery-type religious community place, and he became known far and wide as a man of humble attention to God in the course of everyday life. And the way that he was able to do this was that he was continually in conversation with God. He, he kept high notions of God in his head throughout the day so he could meditate on the person of God. He put his faith to the test on a daily basis by reaching out to other people. He had a humble disposition as he grew to get to know God, and he experienced the, the blessing of the Beatitudes that we're looking, looking at right here. At first, he thought this was going to be a very difficult road, that it was going to be major sacrifice for him, but he realized that in a humble life, he had a rich life. And so at one point, he wrote these words, I decided to sacrifice my life with all of its pleasures to God. But he greatly disappointed me in this idea. For I have met with nothing but satisfaction in giving my life over to him. Now, it's easy for a lot of us to appreciate that story, but then to rationalize his extreme devotion or humility toward God as a product of his monkish type life. But I haven't told you the whole story. Brother Lawrence didn't join this monastery-type place because he wanted to be a monk. He wanted to have his own cell where he could quietly contemplate God and pursue humility day in and day out. Instead, he joined this religious community as the kitchen staff dishwasher. And so he spent his days working long, long hours, hard work with a busy schedule, sounds like most of us, and it was in those tasks, in the normal stuff of life, that he experienced the blessing of God as he lived in humility. God blesses those who are humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourning and the meek, because they are kingdom citizens who live in humility. Number two, kingdom citizens are those who live with compassion. Have you ever wondered what the world would be like if Christianity never existed? I typed that question into Google just recently. I just said, what if Christianity never existed in order to see what people are saying about this kind of thing? And there were all sorts of blog comments. They were endlessly long. And I wasn't super surprised by the result of it. In summary, most people said the world would be a much better place if Christianity didn't exist. Because there's all this fighting and all of this nonsense that comes about with Christianity. Well, that goes completely contrary to, his, to the historical record. In fact, I think most times, unfortunately, that kind of view arises because of personal bad experiences. Christianity certainly has its dark moments, but it also has a lot of intense high points. Now, aside from inviting people to enter the kingdom, a high change the world priority indeed, Christians have been influential in all sorts of things. Sexual morality, women's rights, medical care, the value of human life, education, prison reform, economics and labor practices, science, the abolition of slavery, art, 
architecture, music, literature. It would not be a better world if Christianity didn't exist. If you take Christianity out of history, it's a serious loss. Because those kinds of compassionate actions and contributions to culture show that the kingdom of God has broken into our world. Christians have been those kinds of people. Now, the minute we start talking about the kingdom of God and our actions, things can tend to get a little bit confusing. So it's really helpful to reiterate a point that Pastor Jim made last week. He told us that Christ followers don't build the kingdom or advance the kingdom. Instead, we proclaim the kingdom, and as kingdom citizens, we show forth or we evidence the kingdom in our lives. And one of the primary ways that kingdom citizens show up on earth as it is in heaven, is when we show compassion. Jesus envisions kingdom citizens living lives of compassion that evidence the kingdom and that open the door for proclamation. We talked about this a little while earlier in the service when we thought about this salt and light stuff that Jesus is talking about. I want to read those verses for us one more time so that we can see how Jesus connects the relationship between kingdom action and the glory of God, opening doors for this proclamation. Take a look at what he says. These are the verses immediately following the Beatitudes. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. These good deeds lead to glorifying the Father How do we live as salt and light? We pay careful attention to the way that Jesus talks about compassionate interaction with our world in these Beatitudes. Look at the next three, Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, at first, as I was meditating on these three Beatitudes, I found it hard to think how these all related to compassion, which was what I wanted to be talking about in this point in our thinking about kingdom citizens and our way of relating to the world. And after a little bit of reflection, it finally popped. They're all concerned with the same issue. The common denominator in these blessings is fairness. In the first instance, there is a longing, a hunger and a thirst For the right thing to be done, for justice to be done, for people to be treated fairly or according to righteousness. The merciful are those who bear with or suffer with or show compassion toward those who have been treated unfairly. And the pure in heart do the right thing for the right reasons out of pure motivation. Kingdom citizens see the hurts and pains in the people around them, and there are lots of them, and a longing deep inside them triggers a need to respond, and then they seek to extend mercy and to fix problems and to give generously and to meet needs. I summarize it this way. They do the right thing for people in the right way when the right thing needs to be done. 
They do the right thing for people in the right way when the right thing needs to be done. It's their responsibility. It's the way of life for kingdom citizens. And it's the impulse that sits underneath every single ministry of Christ Community Church out to the needy in our church or in our community. Can you hear a commercial coming on? I actually have a confession for you about ministry commercials. You know, sometimes I feel like when one of us, me included, gets rolling on one of these ministry commercials, either we're going to tell you about some ministry that you could serve in or event that you should invite to or trip that you should go on or major initiative that you should participate in. Sometimes I feel like it's a bit forced or I feel like you're being sold something, like I'm being sold something or I'm selling something and a lot of times I just feel like I don't like it. And God wanted to work on me in that. And so this last Wednesday, I was leading our men's supergroup, and I was told just a day or two before the supergroup that these folks, the directors of the Kids Hope USA at St. Charles campus, were going to be coming to share with all of our guys about this. And immediately, I just was like, oh no, ministry commercial. It's going to come out of left field. It's going to make these guys feel a little bit awkward. We don't do that kind of thing super often, and so it's going to be right tagged on at the end, and uh, I just don't like it. Well, these two wonderful women show up, and they want to talk about Kids Hope. And so they start talking about the impact of Kids Hope in these families' lives. They start talking about the way that we're making a splash in the public schools. They start to talk about all of the different ministry things that are available. They start to talk about all of these guys finding a place to mentor a kid for an hour a week. And suddenly, as I'm sitting there, I'm listening to them, and it's compelling, and it makes perfectly good sense to me, and this is what we should be doing. And so I'm totally convicted, standing there, thinking, how wrong am I to think this wasn't a good idea? God wasn't done yet. Later that same day, I had a meeting scheduled with Larry Stratton to talk about community impact ministries, what we're doing as a church so that I could include it in this point of our message. I'm planning ministry commercials, and I just don't even want to do them. And he's telling me all of these things that we're doing, all of these amazing ministries that we've got going on, and all of these lives changed, like the ones we saw in the video earlier, and some future plans that we had. And I had this revelation. I was dead wrong about the Kids Hope thing, and I'm dead wrong about these ministry commercials. I was converted on the spot. There are all sorts of things going on that need to be talked about because Jesus calls us, I will say this to myself, from myself, to do the right thing for the right people in the right way when the right thing needs to be done. It's our responsibility. It's what kingdom citizens do. And so I have gone from unashamed, from, excuse me, convicted to confessing to unashamed commercial guy. There are all sorts of things that we need to be talking about. If we know of opportunities to participate in all of these ministries, and there are lots and lots and lots of amazing things going on, but we don't talk about them, or we don't urge one another to participate in them, or we don't make appeals for more people to get in the game, then we're neglecting a significant part of our discipleship to Jesus. Now, saying all of that doesn't mean that the only needs that need to be met are needs that we're going to roll out in a ministry commercial of some sort. There are lots of needs that you know of that you could be meeting. But having said that, many of us don't know about those needs and need them highlighted so that we can get jumped in the game. And in a lot of cases, most cases, maybe most of us aren't doing anything. So here are four action steps for you. Four straight-up ministry commercials. Here they come. Number one. Most obvious and easiest way to engage in ministry to the needy is to participate in Super Second Saturday. June 14th, join in a project. Get 
get into a group. If you're not in a group, get your group to take a need on and go and meet that need. Second, I'll plug one ministry. Talk to the directors of Kids Hope USA at your campus and commit to spend time one hour a week with one of these kids in this upcoming school year. Because, again, I was astounded at the kinds of effects that we're having in these schools in a really simple way. Third, go to the community impact page on our website or to the counter at your campus and spend some time talking about all of the different ministry opportunities that are available and then go show some compassion to people. And then fourth and finally, find someone on your campus who's doing community impact ministry and just have them share stories with you. Because you'll be amazed at the kind of things that are going on that you could be participating in, that we could be kingdom citizens who show compassion. Because when we've spent ourselves for others, God will fill us up. The hungry will be filled, Jesus says. When we've shown mercy, we'll be shown mercy. When we've been intentional to do the right thing for the right reasons, we'll be satisfied for having done the will of God. So let's demonstrate compassion as kingdom citizens. Number three, kingdom citizens are those who live at peace. Listen as I read the final verses, verses 9 through 12. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who persecute you, who are persecuted, excuse me, because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, you'll no doubt immediately see that this is the first time that we have doubling up. Jesus has two blessing statements for the persecuted, but he makes a distinction between the reasons for the persecutions. So in the first instance, recorded in verse 10, kingdom citizens are persecuted because of righteousness. You know, there are instances when the broader culture will get behind or will agree with or will applaud the church as it engages in some kind of issue of injustice when we meet it with compassion. But there are other instances when the longing to do the right thing, to be done in the right way, will lead to opposition. And rather than applaud, the broader culture will see this negatively, mostly because those who are benefiting from the injustice are threatened. You know, there are lots of examples of this kind of thing, but if you just think, for instance, of the major battle in our culture and the ensuing demonization that's happened as Christ followers have stood up to put an end to abortion. Lots and lots of opposition to this. God blesses kingdom citizens who take the heat for standing up for the right things because of righteousness. In the second persecuted blessing, in verse 11, Jesus says that the insults and slander are because of me. Increasingly in our culture, association with Jesus, especially as a full-fledged kingdom citizen living a kingdom way of life, results in persecution. And according to Jesus, there's a blessing for those who endure and there's a stance that they're to take. They're to be peacemakers. They're to live at peace. Now the proximity of peace and persecution in list is no accident. In fact, I think it's the prime place where Jesus wants to direct his thinking is that we respond peacefully to those who persecute us. But having said that, it certainly doesn't exclude other important and much-needed peacemaking activities more broadly in our lives. Let, Let me say it like this. If you're a kingdom citizen, 
and you can say that you're not on speaking terms with someone, then it's time to make peace. It really makes no difference who seems to be at fault or if you know that you know that you know that you're not at fault. Kingdom citizens are peacemakers. In a lot of cases, you're not even going to be in the conflict. You might just be aware of one or you might observe one. And rather than staying out of it, which is what conventional wisdom certainly advises us to do, you step in because you endeavor to make peace. It's possible that you'll get in a doghouse relationally or that you might even get persecuted for this kind of thing. But kingdom citizens are peacemakers. So if you're aware of a conflict between two friends or two spouses or two people at work or two members in your community group or two family members or two neighbors, then you need to hear Jesus saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That's a fantastic blessing, by the way. Being called children of God envisions more and more and more of God's character in the life of a kingdom citizen who makes peace. But I'm also struck by the fact that in the context of peace and persecution, where fear may fuel intense fighting and conflict, peacemakers don't need to fear because their father is in control. And their father is himself the God of peace, which means that his will includes our peacemaking. He undergirds our peacemaking. He enables our peacemaking. He empowers our peacemaking because he is the God of peace. A ton more could be said about all of this, in particular about peace. And in fact, Jesus did say much more about all of this in his Sermon on the Mount. But as we wrap up, I want to invite our bands to come and help us prepare for worship, but I also want to encourage you to do two things in closing. The first thing is that Jesus spells out this kingdom vision, kingdom life, really clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, and so it would be really good as an application of this entire series to read and meditate and discuss these chapters in the book of Matthew, 5 through 7, to read them and meditate on them and have conversations about them. And then secondly... And more specifically, you'll be richly rewarded if you commit these beatitudes to memory. Now, it takes a lot to displace the marching orders of the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of self and success. And so the ability to acclimate ourselves to Jesus' marching orders, that happens when you start to soak in these kinds of things. So memorize these. You know, we've seen that kingdom citizens live in a counterculture. They've got a way of life with norms and rules and standards for appropriate behavior. They live in humility, with compassion, and at peace. And as verse 12 makes clear, they should rejoice and be glad because great is their reward in heaven. Now, I certainly don't know what that reward is going to be, but there's a parable in the Gospel of Luke Jesus tells a story and he says that faithful kingdom citizens are going to receive words of approval on that day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Kingdom citizens are those who live in humility and with compassion and at peace in service to Jesus and in love to our world. 